for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. From the Cold War to propaganda and the deep state. Helen Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hi, welcome to my TNT show. Uh, I'm going to talk about Assange and various other things today. Um, Julian Assange, of course, the most famous political prisoner in the West, jailed for exposing U.S. war crimes um, and uh, publishing diplomatic secrets, which we all deserve to know about um, over 10 years ago and revolutionizing uh, journalism, has spent much of the decade in uh, various dungeons. And uh, he's going, the question is whether he's going to be extradited to the United States and that will be discussed tomorrow at the London courts, uh, and we will be covering it tomorrow and uh, Wednesday. Now, we're doing this a, a piece of uh, public information because I guess you haven't heard about it from the mainstream media if you still follow it. Uh, instead, uh, you have been hearing about Alexei Navalny, who's a very convenient excuse uh, to cover up for a lot of other things. We've had wall-to-wall coverage of a man a lot of people hadn't heard about. Um, I look at my Facebook feed, not to find out what's going on in the world, of course not, but to find out what common thing, normal people think what's going on in the world. I have a lot of uh, sort of uh, pensioners and, you know, plumbers and people working uh, in this, uh, in, in the small blue collar town I'm living in. And uh, thousands of them, in fact, you know, and they normally publish cat pictures and, um, and videos of the ongoing restoration work on their American vintage automobiles, that sort of thing. But there almost seems to be a concerted effort now to publish uh, pictures of Navalny and say, don't comment, or just some comment about Russian tyranny. And uh, they usually have hundreds of comments or dozens of comments and teardrop signs and things like that. And you think, what's going on with people? I mean, uh, Navalny is not an important person in their lives. They might have heard from him a few years ago, one or two news items. But apart from this big orgy of, of coverage, you know, 10 articles between the pages one and three in the Daily Mail and, and the Swedish press and so on. And now he's raised to the heights as a kind of uh, a saint, a symbol of uh, opposition to tyranny of Putin and all these things. And suddenly uh, the Swedish and European publics are being deluged with information that leads them to kind of identify with this man in a very emotional way. I mean, that's propaganda straight off, you know, uh, because they don't know much about him, of course, and they haven't had uh, months and years to identify with him or think about his positions, which, in fact, to be fair, Assange is such a person. And of course, he's forgotten. I mean, you, he, he was one of the most famous pe- persons in the world about 10, five or 10 years ago. And uh, his uh, hugely important uh, event is taking place tomorrow. And people are talking about this Navalny figure who according to some uh, articles in the non-mainstream media, has uh, Western media intelligence background. There was this fuss a few years ago about whether he'd been poisoned with Novichok, and I don't think that was Novichok, this poison that kills people instantly and and very quickly in very small doses, but rather it was another one of those spy games to demonize the Russians. Uh, I'll have an interview in on next week who will talk about this in detail, how that also was a hoax. Um, Of course, uh, Putin could have killed uh, Navalny in his remote uh, Siberian security jail. That was not a difficult thing to do. Of course, he could have done. But the question is why he'd have the motive to do so, since he just positioned himself as a friend of peace in the European media, through the uh, in the European publics and American publics' minds, through this interview gave with Tucker Carlson. I think it had over two hundred million views, 
uh, on Twitter, X, and uh, 15 or 20 million views on YouTube. So a lot of people heard Putin speak in his own words for the first time, rather than through the distorted words of a malicious Western media. And they found out that he was a calm, rational figure who offered peace, and he showed quite uh, genuinely, in my view, how he'd been uh, rejected time and time and again uh, in his wish to collaborate with the West, even seeking to join NATO sometime about 20 years ago. But that was nixed by the American security state. So this was a man who's disappointed and kind of wounded. And this war was not necessary. So but so Putin could have done it. He had the capability, but did he have the motive to do so? Um, it could have been MI6 or, uh, uh, or the Ukrainian intelligence, who of course speak Russian and can infiltrate these things. But you have to say, well, are they capable of doing this? Who knows? I certainly wonder if... Um, the Western media and Western politicians know so quickly because at the Munich Security Conference, they all within minutes of this news coming out had almost ready prepared speeches uh, about how the Russians did it. It's fun funny, isn't it, how the West knows that um, uh, who killed uh, a political prisoner thousands of miles away in a Siberian prison when 16 months work can't determine who, uh, who exploded the North Stream pipeline, which uh, left Europe and, uh, with an deindustrialization de problem. And they don't know who killed Epstein, this uh, very strange man who had the tabs on a lot of uh, political secrets and who, uh, for whom the security cameras in his US high security jail was switched off. They don't know that either. And um, uh, so I guess it could be uh, Western intelligence, but uh, of course you have to ask where they had the capabilities. But if they did do it, it's quite a clever move because of course it makes the Russian political elite maybe even people close to Putin say, well, if they can do that in the remote prison, can they do it to us in the Kremlin? You know, have, do we have to watch out? It's all spy games and, and we, we can't say, we certainly can't sit here scrolling our Twitter feeds or Facebook feeds to know for sure what happened. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, the Western leadership uh, at the Munich Security Conference got a new lease of life in their Russophobia, in my view. But of course, uh, there are no armies in Europe to do much about what uh, Russia's recent successes in Adivka, which, of course, are, are one of the victims of the uh, Navalny wall-to-wall -wall coverage. And instead, uh, they're talking of uh, a long-term project of uh, rearming Europe, which they'll have to do even more uh, because of the US uh, possible pullout uh, from, uh, from the European interests, uh, with Trump warning that he's going to do so. Uh, but it's going to be a long-term project, and of course, it'll impoverish the Europeans even more, having already been impoverished by the loss of cheap gas from Russia and because of unproductive immigration. So there are big problems ahead for Europe, and we're going to talk to our news producer, Basil, about some of the issues related to the uh, Munich Security Conference and Navalny. Uh, further details uh, after the break. This is TNT Radio. Keeping the commitment 24-7. I come to you for facts. I really appreciate what you and your team do. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Uh, welcome back to TNT. This is uh, the news segment. Uh, we've got our news producer, Basil, with us. Uh, Basil, what have you got for us today? And any more on the uh, on the Navalny story that uh, we've, we've missed? Well, he's presented as some kind of Latter-day Saint by Western leaders, but... Uh, it's worth noting that two years ago, Amnesty International stripped him of his prisoner of conscience status after it was bombarded with complaints highlighting xenophobic comments he'd made in the past and not renounced. Uh, and it's also worth saying that he was, in fact, a peripheral figure, a marginal figure 
who enjoyed the support of only a tiny minority of the Russian population. But again, from the uh, way he was lauded by Western leaders, anyone would think he was some kind of popular resistance hero along the lines of a Russian Nelson Mandela, when in fact mm. he was anything but. Well, he, I mean, why would Russia knock him off now when he's sort of safe and sound and quiet in a high security prison with 2% of the vote, just at a time when uh, Putin has won these diplomatic victories around the world and Russia's winning on the battlefield as well? What's the motive? Well, that's exactly it. And, and that uh, sentiment was echoed this morning by Lubosh Blaha, uh, the vice speaker of the Slovak parliament, uh, who posted the following message on X. It's sad, of course, that the man died, but it's strange that the whole West is now cheerfully promoting conspiracy theories and his death has not even been investigated. Putin definitely didn't need his death. Navalny would have had to spend the next decades in prison and he didn't threaten anyone politically. According to officials, the cause of his death was a blood clot. We don't know anything else. The case is being investigated. Everything else is conspiracies. Mm. He went well, on, mm. I will not pretend that I will cry all night because of Navalny now. Thousands of children are dying in Gaza and the media spit on them. They will now mm. talk on air for a week only about this one American agent. That's the mm. other question, Penny. Was he, in fact, a CIA asset? Anyway, yeah. uh, they better look at what the British and Americans are doing to Julian Assange who is in custody on the verge of death in this glorious West, which prides itself on freedom of speech and protection of journalists. Mm. Let them remember how they remained silent when the mm. American journalist Gonzalo Lira, who criticized Zelensky, recently mm. died in Ukrainian custody. They didn't even remember about it. And today they will moralize about Navalny's death. Again, it's always <laughs> sad when a person dies, but this is pure hypocrisy. It's funny, I mean, it, everything needs context. I mean, propaganda, which I'm absolutely fascinated by, isn't uh, lies by commission. It's often lies by omission. I mean, it, it is or a bit of both, actually. So the context is, of course, that the American liberals, American media doing everything to try and steal the 2024 election in America. So it's just a slow, slow version of uh, what's going on in Russia. Let's 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 grant, you know, that uh, the Russian election uh, in March won't won't give enormous opportunities to the Putin's opposition. Okay, but I mean we shouldn't be standing on our high moral hobby horse because America is doing everything it can to make its leading opposition figure ineligible for election. So what's the difference, you know? And of course, and we talk about Navalny. I mean, I'm going to try and interview the woman who uh, has written a lot about Navalny uh, later this week. Uh, and she she thinks he's a Western asset, and he was playing these Novichok games with the with the West uh, to get a headline. You know that Russian is the source of all evil, but it's another. It's like the script fell another BS story. But I mean, um, you've got you've got thousands of dead children in Palestine, which the West and the U U Europe is not doing anything about. You've got hundred uh, Arab journalists apparently killed, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is a kosher official body, CPJ. 100 journalists or so have been, uh, died in the Palestinian conflict in the last three months. Where are the uh, talk sh 
light vigils, candlelight vigils for these victims, if you're just thinking about freedom, for instance. And as I said, thousands of Palestinian children are dying, and, and no, where, where is the tragedy there? Or Zelensky's so short of manpower now, he's sending young, young women to the front line. And the most tragic thing, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when I saw, um, I've seen, I don't go out of my way to look at these kind of uh, death and destruction videos, but they sometimes come into my feed. And I saw something which really sort of hit home somehow, like few other videos, I guess, because we've become inured to seeing dead men, but a, a dead young woman, you know, you, with you, a sort of shapely young woman, you can see her, her stomach and her, her bottom, you know, I mean, in combat trousers, but you could see that that had once been a very beautiful young woman and that and uh, she'd been uh, bombed and uh, and you think so the ukrainians are now sending in their young women and of course there are other views on tiktok showing that these young women not the same young women but from another brigade a platoon or whatever playing tiktok on tiktok in the trenches you know in that sort of young women way and uh, now they're being sent into uh, now they're being droned it's it's horrific isn't it anyway so this navalny thing is. just distracts from everything else like where where is the peace? Why didn't they discuss a peace deal? I mean, Putin extended a hand last week at the at the um, at the interview. You know, why we can have another Minsk or Istanbul agreement? The, the, the agreements that uh, Ukrainian dissident officials said were would actually be quite generous and could have worked, but we should Boris cancelled and insisted, insisting that we could beat the Russians. You know, and that hasn't worked out. So instead of going back to something like that and talking peace, we're just talking about how escalating to cover up for the elite's mistakes in this war. I mean, they'd rather that the whole of Europe goes up in a radioactive pyre than admit that they were wrong and lose power as a result. That's that's the makes that's what makes me angry. Well, that's right. It's completely insane the current path of the West, but uh, we've got this sort of confluence of several uh, international legal and war scenarios, if you like. Just this morning, the International Court of Justice is beginning its hearing of the broader Palestinian case. I was mm -hmm. listening to it this morning, and it's basically a restatement of the requirement of intent under international law of Israel mm -hmm. to withdraw from East Jerusalem and the rest of the occupied territories. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's a litany of war crimes, quite apart from Gaza, uh, the mm -hmm. theft of land in the West Bank, the appropriation of water and other natural resources, the uh, prevention of the expression of uh, Palestinian culture, so on and so forth. It was a very well laid out case I heard mm -hmm. this morning. So you've got that going on at the ICJ. You've got uh, Assange in court tomorrow morning. Um, we've got the uh, ever bubbling Ukraine-Russia situation. Uh, and these things are all sort of you know, one way or another interlinked. Mm. And we will find out, um, first of all, with the Assange hearing in the next couple of days, if there is to be a victory for common sense and freedom there, whether mm. or not uh, international law does actually apply to all nations equally, or whether mm. for some unknown reason there is an Israel exception. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, will the Munich Security Conference end up with a further escalation so you know these are very interesting times Pele aren't they with these uh yeah you know, on the one are hand you... attempts at in applying international law go on are you going to the Assange thing you're in the UK 
well, I will be, I, I'm, unfortunately, I don't have any credentials to get inside the courthouse, but we at TNT will be broadcasting live from a venue adjacent to the Old Bailey from mm -hmm. nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Um, mm -hmm. And I will certainly pop up at some point over the couple of days of the hearing. The um, one theory I heard, I mean, it's just a rumour, I, I don't know, maybe Jeffrey Sachs floated it or something, said that uh, they'll they'll let Assange go and the assassination or whatever, the death of Navalny can then be used as a contrast between As the West letting go of Assange and the Russians killing Navalny. So they'll get, try and get a propaganda coup out of it. Have you well, heard that? I mean, no, I haven't heard that. Uh, it's an interesting perspective. I mean, theoretically, it's up to the, to the British judge and judges are not supposed to be tampered with or or have their yeah. minds made up by wider propaganda and political considerations. Uh, although yeah. the judge in the Assange case does have direct links to the British establishment. So people mm -hmm. are afraid that he won't get a fair shake. In what, in what way is he connected? Does, are there any names there that we should know about? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have them right to hand at the moment. Okay. But, um, you've caught right. me on the hop there, <laughs> Benny. Right. But uh, I mean, obviously any judge is a member of the establishment, but I think... He has previously been an advisor to the UK government in political cases when a barrister. Judges right. are barristers who get okay. promoted up to the to the bench. And uh, this chap has been directly involved in work. Put it that way. OK, Basil, I think we're done for today's news. Uh, that was great. Uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow and uh, have a good day. This is TNT Radio. We'll have our next guest on after a quick break. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in. We have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. I don't want to see protests shut down. But obviously, when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with. I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. The benefits of advertising on today's News Talk TNT Radio should be clear to businesses of any shape or size. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anybody and is the perfect way to build brand awareness and stimulate digital activity. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. tntradio.live. Hi, welcome back to the Pelennero's Taylor Show on TNT. We've got Michaela Rong with us. Uh, she is one of... Uh, the best-known Africa correspondents in the British uh, media firmament, and she's written many books and spent over two decades writing about Africa, including a stint as a, the Financial Times correspondent there, and she's written some of the best books, in my view, on, on that continent. Uh, when I was uh, about 20, I wanted to be an Africa correspondent, actually. Um, 
And we're going to talk a little bit about the Congo because your first book was called In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, uh, which traced uh, the dictator Mobutu's uh, rise and fall. And uh, it's particularly interesting to me because I, I've been working on a, well, it's a, I published a book called uh, The Day the UN Died about uh, the life and death of the UN Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld, who was trying to resolve the Congo crisis, uh, but died in the process. I think it was an assassination. Um, and lots of other people do too. And um, his story is always inter intertwined with the death of uh, the sort of, um, I don't know, you could call him some kind of Nelson Mandela figure. I don't know, it's a bit of a generalization of black French speaking Africa, a guy called Patrice Lumumba, who was also assassinated a few months before Hammerfeld. And uh, a lot has been written about that. And the, it, his death has created a lot of resentment against imperialism and European and American control generally over Africa. So what we're going to try and do, uh, Michele, is kind of yoke together our two expertise areas because you you pick up the story after where where I stopped studying. Um, well, tell us a little bit about In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz. I mean, a lot of people watching yeah. this will barely have heard of Mobutu. So who was Mobutu and... Uh, yeah. What I'll did do you do to the Congo? Here's my here's the book. <laughs> um, so Mobutu, yeah, he's the guy who really put his brand on on Congo. He he renamed it apart from anything else. He called it Zaire. He 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 introduced a new currency called the Zaire. He named the river the Zaire, um, and he was sort of famous for uh, his um, leopard skin hat, which he wore everywhere. He was a tall man, very imposing, rather good looking. Um, and he uh, took over, he, he staged two coups in Congo, as it was called before he took over, um, uh, and took over, you know, during these tumultuous years, which we're going to talk about, um, Patrice Lumumba had been his former boss. He had been his private secretary, the uh, Patrice Lumumba, the first elected prime minister of Congo. Um, and Mobutu was his private secretary and then was given by Lumumba the job of, uh, of, of taking control of the army. And what happened immediately after independence was that the army mutinied, the Congolese army mutinied, mm -hmm. because they had been told that they would still have uh, Belgian officers running them. And then you also had provinces that were very rich in minerals and diamonds uh, suddenly announcing that they were going solo, they were going independent, they were peeling off. Uh, and so the whole country was falling apart. Belgium was playing a role in that because it wanted to retain, uh, it was a former colonial master, it wanted to retain control of those minerals. Um, uh, Patrice Lumumba turned to the UN, asked them to help send troops, which they did very, very fast. Then he felt the UN troops weren't doing anything. He called in the Soviet Union. Um, the Americans got very upset about this. They had a very active uh, CIA officer, Larry Devlin. Um, and in the end, what, what happened is Mobutu neutralized Lumumba um, and, and took over. Um, he staged two coups. And after the, the last one, 1965 one, he took over the country and, and ran it for the next 32 years. Uh, and, and, and I guess, I mean, for people who've heard of him at all, he's sort of the byword for this totally corrupt African dictator who lives in luxury and stuffs all his money in Swiss bank accounts while his people live in poverty. But the, the young Mobuti, the one that emerges in the text that I read and used as my primary sources, He's almost he's rather sensitive and intelligent man, you know, who yes, yes, who yes. is almost a bit restrained actually, and 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 suffers from doubts and caution, and is not doesn't come across as power mad, you know. Um, no, 
Yeah, and I think the does, American... that, does that Mobutu surprise you when you started reading up on Hammerfeld a bit and all the Lumumba a, a period? Because I I lived in Congo. I was there as a correspondent for Reuters and the BBC, and it was the dying era. You know, the the last mm. years of Mobutu shortly before he was toppled um, mm. uh, by a rebel group that came in from Rwanda, and um, and and then he was a very distant figure. He had retired to a palace in the jungle called Badalite, um, uh, which you know where every no expense had mm. been spent uh, had uh, spared building it famously that the the airstrip had been specially built so that it could take concord because he liked to fly his his family to disneyland in the us uh, and so he had become known for excess for you know flying in muscles from belgium his taste for pink champagne but but yeah if you go back that's not the mabutu that you you encounter you encounter um a man who is extremely brave because he was having to put down all these army mutinies you know, just by persuading very angry congolese mm. soldiers to put down their arms uh he was he was chosen really by the 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 us and the cia as as their man because mm. they thought he was a pragmatist and they could uh, you know they could persuade him they could win mm. him round whereas lumumba was this great charismatic uh speaker orator who mm. could sway the crowds but was also somebody who never compromised who had a great way mm. of rubbing people up the wrong way who appalled you know every time he met mm. the UN officials or US officials because uh, he did go over to Washington they would come away saying we can't do business with this guy he's completely off the wall um so he's a yeah. very polarizing figure whereas Mobutu came across as you know a safe pair of hands and um yeah. and he was he was very smart you know he yeah. and he kept the country together i mean what what congolese yeah. people remember today is this is the guy who kept the country together in one piece right right yeah. i will just uh, i think that um well, I mean, but, uh, I think Hammarfeld has been excoriated in some sections of the media for disliking Lumumba. Uh, uh, so he, the UN didn't do enough to stop Lumumba uh, being killed. I mean, and they cited the, the UN resolution to say they can't intervene. But Hammarfeld, I think, I'm not a, a great fan of Hammarfeld. I think that, but I'm not a, I'm not an enemy of Hammarfeld by any means. I mean, he's a flawed character, but I think that he was trying to yoke the country together and you couldn't have a figure like Lumumba, who's so polarizing, on the scene just yet. And he said there will be a role for Lumumba, but his his other staff have to come on board first. His party, the guy, his deputy called Gizenga, has to be the man in charge. And then in a few years' time, we can bring Lumumba on board because so many people just hate him. So I don't. I think that you, if you read it closely, uh, he, he, Pamafrod was basically trying to turn Congo into sort of. His lesson, his experience was as a civil, one of the top civil servants in Sweden. And Sweden is a very homogeneous and very uh, compromise-minded country. And they had, but they had quite a lot of class war polarization in the 1920s. But they brought that together. And he was one of the instrumental characters who brought it together. It's a famous moment in Swedish history when the bourgeoisie, the, the employers and the employees shook hands. And then you had this corporatist state that was very successful for 50 years and made Sweden a byword for democracy and all the rest of it and prosperity. And I think that uh, Hammerfeld also had the Swedish floor, which is intense naivety, because he thought that everyone is basically Swedish <laughs> and everyone can uh, get together and sit down and, and cobble together. So he wanted to create that kind of coalition government uh, between Lumumbists and Katanga, which is the British-backed, Belgian-backed province. But of course, the history of Congo is so totally different from the history of Sweden. So it's that naivety. But we'll yeah. carry on talking about if Lumumba had lived, what the Congo would have looked like uh, after a quick break. Uh, this is TNT Radio.
And while the war may be a tactical issue for NATO, Vladimir Putin says for Russia, it's a matter of life or death. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Uh, this is the Pelinero Taylor Show. Welcome back. Uh, we've got Michaela Rong, who's a brilliant Africa correspondent um, and who has worked for a lot of major newspapers and written some very, very insightful books, uh, including the only one I've read so far, but I will read the others, In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, which was a, a, a sort of very vivid book uh, of the last days of the dictator of Zaire, today called Congo, in the, in the late 1990s. You described that uh, that. Uh, feeling of collapse very, very well. Did people say, well, if we're only, did people ever reference Lumumba when they were talking about uh, the, the demise of Mobutu's regime? There wasn't much talk about Lumumba when I was living uh, there in the mid-1990s. And uh, what there was, was there was this Limete Tower, which was what you used to drive past when you came in from the airport. And it was this unfinished kind of tower that Mobutu had built in tribute to Lumumba, his former boss and friend. And it was unfinished and served absolutely no purpose and you couldn't visit it. And and um, what's interesting now is there's a, a large statue of uh, Lumumba there uh, made by the Koreans. Um, so there was a sense of, um, he hovered, the, his ghost hovered around the country, mm. but, um, but that people, you know, it was a very long time ago and people weren't mm. talking about him. People were just trying to work out, you know, what was going to happen after Mobutu quit the scene? Um, uh, I, I think I, I always felt that his legacy was a, a, a negative one, though, because um, what, what it had left was this feeling that um, the, the, the Congolese had no agency over their mm. own future and the, the, the path that their country would take. Uh, and I think that that has really lingered, that feeling of what happens to Congo is not decided by us or our leaders. It's decided mm. in the West you know, mm. or, 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 or in Moscow, you know, it, because mm. Congo was always seen as the sort of victim of the Cold War. Mobutu yeah. was the friend of the the, the, the the States. Lumumba had died, you know, and he was the sort of left-wing hero. Um, mm. And there was a feeling of like, nothing's going to happen in this country unless the West says it will happen. And that's a very damaging legacy. Well, I mean, if you look at other countries outside Africa, uh, which I mean, so so the West has meddled in Africa and assassinated leaders here and there. there. And I, I know the atrocities in Kenya and places like that. But I mean, America bombed Vietnam to pieces. There was a war in Korea. Both Vietnam and uh, South Korea are, are booming, and they've taken agency. Then they don't look at the past. They don't whine about the past. And I was in South Africa recently. And I, I wish we had a longer interview actually because we talk about that. But they they were saying that. Um, that a lot, some of the white uh, entrepreneurs and engineers I spoke to said, oh, well, I travel around the world. And more, every time I go to a new country, I see another country that's overtaken us. You know, South Africa is flatlining uh, and uh, they were very prosperous. They were richer than South, uh, Vietnam, definitely 30 years ago. And now Vietnam is better off 
after all agent orange and uh, millions of uh, deaths and yeah. all that they're better off than south africa which was handed to the anc on a plate you know a first world economy in parts anyway so your your um um your because you said uh, in, in that review of uh, the recent um, English language book on Lumumba, which uh, there's been a lot Stuart in the Reed French press. Yeah, the yeah. Stuart Reed, and you were crit critiquing that, and you think it's quite good in parts and so on. But you were sort of saying that um, uh, there were moments where you disagreed with him because you you said that um, well you disagreed with Stuart Reed's. He said that if South if Congo had had a Lumumba, uh, it mm. would have been maybe a bit poor and chaotic, but basically a much better country. And you said, well, I disagree with you there. You disagreed with the writer there, but you didn't quite go on to say in what sense you disagreed. Um, I, I think that's a very good book, by the way. Uh, uh, yeah. It's beautifully written. It's very, very, mm -hmm. it just flows when you read it. And it's also got a huge amount of information in it. So I think he's done a really good job. But yeah, yeah. there are there are moments where I disagree with him. One of them is this idea that, you know, Congo would have been just like any other African country. Congo, one of the problems with Congo was its size. And that was going to be a problem for whoever ran Congo, whether it was Mobutu or Lumumba. It's, you know, the, the, the cliche people say is it's the size of Western Europe. And it has huge diversity. So it's got 250 diff different ethnic groups and languages. So you've got a country that's only that that's that's become independent in a massive rush, um, doesn't have an educated uh, or technocratic um, class, uh, doesn't know you know how to operate a country. Uh, you suddenly plunged into independence, and not only that, but it's one of the richest countries in Africa. So it's got diamond mines, it's got cobalt. We now know it has coltan. It had um, uh, the substances used to make nuclear weapons, uranium. Uh, you know, it's got uh, oil, it's got timber. So uh, it was always going to be um, a, a country that people would scrap over. And that's exactly mm. what you're seeing now with Rwanda, one of its neighboring countries, keeps sort of sending uh, rebel troops, uh, you know, that mm. it supports and arms into Congo. Uh, and there's been this long tradition of its neighboring countries sort of sucking up its uh, mineral resources uh, illegally and then exporting them, pretending that they're... they're they belong to the the neighboring countries. So I think I think Congo was always in a gonna be um independence was always gonna be difficult. And I think Mobutu sort of did what he could to sort of patch the country together, and Lumumba would have tried to do that. But Mobutu was a less divisive figure um mm. than uh, than Lumumba would have been. So right. um uh, you know the fact that Lumumba uh, Mobutu struggled to sort mm. of to, to create a functioning economy and country. Mm. Um, mm. Yes, that's partly his own failings, but it's also, it was a massive task. Yeah. Well, I've always wondered, I mean, the, the logic uh, of the Versailles Treaty was that you should have self-determination. I mean, so all these dissident, I mean, the uh, separatist, the secessionist movement uh, in Katanga, which was the rich, mineral-rich Southern Republic, was, oh, it says just the whites who want to steal all the minerals. That's the sort of standard leftist trope but actually i mean these the tribal elements of the katanga were totally different from the ones dominating in the capital leopoldville so what why should they have anything in common why shouldn't they go their own way i mean if you're talking about and that's the problem with all these colonial borders and countries yeah. sticking to them after independence it just leaves them totally yeah. divided Yes, I mean, so, one well, thing, yeah, with yeah. there were four separate governments in, in what was then called Congo. So, right. uh, you know, and, and, and Mobutu had to sort of stitch them together. But, um, yeah, right. yeah. So just, um, it, we, we, there's more, I'd love to talk about your, your book on uh, uh, 
Rwanda because I don't think we have time now. But th there's something yeah. that, that because he was um, Kagame has been around for 30 years and he's a friend of the British and he's going to accept British asylum seekers or not. But anyway, he's in the headlines. Yeah. But his yeah. goons have been after you, haven't they? Because you wrote an unflattering uh, yeah, book. Well, I published this in 2021 and um, uh, I'm actually going to be in Australia promoting it. Uh, right. uh, in a couple of months' time. Um, okay. But um, uh, 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 Kagame, Paul Kagame, president of uh, Rwanda since uh, 2000, he, he really doesn't tolerate dissent or criticism. So as soon as you mm. say anything, or you, you know, and my book is extremely critical of, mm -hmm. of him and his regime, um, then you just find yourself, you know, you know, absolutely deluged in abuse on on Twitter or social media, whichever social media you go on to. So it's been like that. And also what happens is whenever you try and stage a talk, um, you know, people will be sent to um, sort of make sure it doesn't happen, try and make sure it doesn't happen, or, or, or you know, just sort of bombard the organizers, people who are hosting it with uh, with uh, messages. And what they do is it's, it's very, um, it's very dishonest, because what they'll do is they accuse people like me of being genocide deniers. And it's kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, I, I was one of the journalists, many journalists who covered the, the Rwandan genocide. I, I certainly would never deny it. But that's the accusation. And then so people get very alarmed and they think, oh, my God, this woman's a genocide denier. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, so it's very dishonest. Um, it's, it's, it's very calculated. Uh, it's very mm -hmm. systematic. Everyone who criticizes mm -hmm. Rwanda or Paul Kagame gets the same treatment. So I'm just one of mm -hmm. them. Michele, we've got to end there, unfortunately. Uh, we'd love to have you on again. And uh, good luck with your uh, Australia book tour. But we'll have you on before that and talk more in detail about Africa, which is the up-and-coming continent with one and a half billion people and rising fast. Thanks a lot, Michaela. This is TNT Thank Radio. Thank you very much for having me. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I really don't understand how this trial between Michael Mann and Mark Stein is continuing. And I don't know if Dr. Mann wanted to put his hockey stick on trial. There are so many holes in his argument. It is hard to believe. I don't even understand how people could have let that out without questioning it. And I've talked about this before. One of the biggest problems I have is he won't let anyone look at his data, at least no one that is skeptical of his data. And that should raise red flags. And I've talked about this many, many times. You can go and look at what the global temperature does. When it's warm in the eastern and central part of the United States and warm across Europe, usually the global temperature is elevated. Now, when it's cold in those areas, believe it or not, the global temperature is actually colder. The problem with this whole hockey stick and the recreation of temperatures from pine cones is the areas he looks at and draws his ideas from are usually cold when the earth is warm. So he would not be able to detect that. He would not know that because he's not a meteorologist. If he was a meteorologist, would he know it? Of course he'd know it because we talk about this all the time. They're called teleconnections. So if I were in there talking about this, I'd be asking, where is your meteorology background and are you aware of this going on? But in any case, this whole hockey stick idea of temperature recreation looks to be more of a hokey stick to a lot of us out there. And the first red flag is you wouldn't let anyone look at your data. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bustardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. I'm Sandra, this is Jorge, and we were adopted in 2019. I remember when they first came to us, Michael was already a teenager. 
the whole cliche of they're so lucky to have you guys and it's no. the other way around. They have changed our family for the better. They chose to love us. They didn't have to. They chose us. Family. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Swedish-British journalist, filmmaker, political writer, and author of five books, Pella Neuroth-Taylor, on today's News Talk TNT. Hi, welcome back to TNT. We've got another brilliant guest. They don't stop coming. Uh, Mike Waller, who's written a book called Big Intel, How the CIA and FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains which uh, I've read and I think is an excellent book. I can recommend it to everyone. Uh, it traces the uh, American spy agencies from their high point as defenders of the Constitution and general all-round good guys to the sort of uh, swampy swampiness position that they occupy today. day. Is that a fair summary, Michael? Can you tell us a little bit about your book in a few minutes? Yeah, it's a very fair summary. And you can also trace it the same uh, to uh, to the Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, uh, and British services as well. So the Five Eyes are all like this, as are the Israelis and many other countries. So you, uh, how, what, 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 I mean, it's the sort of narrative thing that one does. You, 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 you present a situation when it was good. And that's when it, it's it's desirable for the intelligence agents to, to return to something like that. So, what was that good state? What what is the it was better in the past? We sometimes say the good old days. What was the good old days for the intelligence agencies and the FBI? The good old days were from, from uh, was when we we had intelligence agencies that served the nation and served the people of that nation, and in our case, the Constitution. Uh, at a time when we we had foreign enemies that wanted to finish us off. Well, we still do have foreign enemies who want to finish us off in different ways. So we need the best intelligence agencies we can possibly have, but one that it, that's aimed at defending all of us against foreign adversaries and not asserting control over the public at home. Mm. Well, we've seen the American uh, intelligence agent CIA seems to be very involved in trying to prevent the democratic will uh, in the in the form of uh, Donald Trump from being uh, standing in the election, which means that, I mean, I always thought, I always America had to stand as a as a moral exemplar to the Western world by being better than its adversaries. But I mean, if if uh, if um, Russia knocks off its opponents, but America prevents them from being elected, and then this insurrection of January 6th. You you wrote you wrote the best piece in my mind about the January 6th insurre fake insurrection because the media, of course, made it out to be bad guys who were trying to uh, come into the Capitol and, and, and destroy American democracy. But you were on the ground. Can you, let's have a little bit of a vivid journalistic description of what you saw and what happened on the January 6th. Well, first I live on Capitol Hill. So I live just a few blocks away from the Capitol. So this is my neighborhood. I worked in the Capitol off and on many years ago. I was I just did an event there the other day. So this is a place that it's a revered place for me, and it's part of my home. So I went to see the the uh, to the January sixth protest, sort of as a last minute thing to do, and it was sort of I was feeling kind of demoralized with the new uh, Biden machine coming in, and I thought, well, let's just go see normal American folks you know, one last time, 
And so I went to the Capitol and the people were, were pretty happy. Uh, they were pretty excited. They were from out of town. So that was, that was the happiness. There were, many of them were obviously in Washington for the first time because they're looking all around at all the buildings and the, the monuments. And I walked with them about, uh, about 12 blocks, 13 blocks to near the White House, all the way up to the Capitol and thought it was strange that the security perimeter was down. Now, when you're having a joint session of Congress, meaning both houses meeting together, when you have the vice president there as well, there's going to be extraordinary security. And in this case, there was there was little security. So the hurricane fence had been taken down. There were no signs to keep out. There were no canine units out there. And, and we saw no police presence at all. Just people just pouring in, going up the, the, the hill, uh, spreading out over the Capitol lawn. And it was sort of normal Americans coming to to express they yes they were upset about how the election vote was being handled but they were still festive and uh however I saw units of people groups of three to five or six at a time running ahead of the crowd they were not part of the crowd they were from somewhere else they some of them had uh provocative um, really provocative slogans or flags like the Confederate battle flag. There were only two out of a number of, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. But you, I know from experience that people carrying the Confederate battle flag front and center are there to cause trouble and to cause, you know, bad images and make some kind of provocation. And then I saw units of people with, with uh, different colored tape on the back of their hats. Some were wearing helmets on the back of their helmets. You know, it's not a good sign when people wear helmets to an event. And, uh, and on their clothing. And sure enough, I got to see them, them move as different units through the crowd. So these were the agents provocateurs who were spread out and they actually ended up causing the real trouble. Hmm. And of course, you've been a CIA agent and an intelligence officer for decades, and you're very experienced at observing behavior and trying to case out a situation. Um, was it, do you think, these, because in your in the article I read, there, there was the Antifa, and then there was sort of soldierly types, maybe from the FBI or some uh, special American Special Forces unit. Were they collaborating with the Antifa, or was it separate attempts to derail the this so-called insurrection? Well, in the article, I thought it was Antifa. I, they, I thought right. they, I wrote that they looked like Antifa, but I really wasn't right. sure, and I didn't right. see those right. units do anything wrong. Oh, right. That was okay. Obvious. I was okay, nailed. So we'll leave them out of the story then. CNN and the Washington right. Post pulled that out and said, you know, that they made a big deal about that. But there were there were there were absolutely coordination between sort of um, uh, organized men who were a bit older than me, so they would have been Vietnam War era veterans who had a military commanding presence, like a sergeant would have, to tell people to not leave, to to physically not let them leave the area, and then tell them mm -hmm. to go up the stairs up to the Senate side to actually attack the Capitol. So I saw that happening close up, and they were coordinating with the much younger people who did a lot of the violence. Wow. And do you think there's coordination with the police and Capitol Hill who seem to let these people in? I mean, was it a grand grand operation, or was it different local players each doing their own thing? I mean, was it, to use the word, a conspiracy, you know, I mean, in, in a good sense of the word, I mean, a true conspiracy? Well, I know the Capitol Police pretty well. And obviously, a lot of them simply were not informed that there was going to be trouble that day. Mm -hmm. So this was an intelligence failure coming from the top. And so that has been 
uh, isolated to the number two Capitol Police official at the time. Her name was Yogananda Pittman, and she was in charge of the intelligence for the Capitol Police. They don't have their own intelligence service, so they collect information from Department of Homeland Security, Secret Service, FBI, and the Washington, D.C. Police. She was responsible for synthesizing that information, and it turns out she had information that there would be trouble, but she did not pass it up to the chief. So mm -hmm. the chief could not organize his forces that way and then be prepared to accept mm -hmm. offers of help as President Trump had offered to have National Guard presence there at the Capitol or have any other uh, uh, special security mm -hmm. coordination with the D.C. police. So mm -hmm. there, there was somebody at the top. Now, Pittman herself uh, then became acting chief and through, through, the, through the goodness of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, then got a, a multi-six-figure uh, compensation package with a new job as chief of police of the Unica University of California at Berkeley got her safe out of D.C., but then we later found she was double-dipping into the Capitol Police because she had one year left to to collect her retirement, so she was kept on the roll secretly so she could keep right. her retirement while getting this big paid job at UC Berkeley and ke keeping her 3,000 miles away from Washington. So something there right. smells really badly. Right. But just, and just to go back to these young men and, and the older Vietnam-era veterans pushing the crowd on, do you think this was a plan from some someone inside the U.S. deep state to to create a situation which would utterly discredit um, the Trump administration and and the, in my view quite legitimate complaints they had about a possibly stolen election and by refocusing the attention and and calling it a coup and so on. Do you think yeah. people gamed this out? Were the people sitting a few blocks away in the weeks leading up to this thing? How can we destroy Trump? How can we destroy this and turn this into something that we can? we can benefit from or we can imprison these people on the basis of at the time i would have thought that was a crazy conspiracy theory i can't say that anymore right having been involved with uh regime changes with color revolutions yeah with yeah. attempts to overthrow other governments and and, right. and some some successful um yeah i know what to recognize and these things don't happen naturally now, right. if there was a real attempt to overthrow Congress, you could have wiped out the entire Congress with two small squads of armed men. Right, right. And okay. you, so, so if you're going to overthrow a government, that's what you're going to do. You're not going to go in with flagpoles and, and, and right. you know, Viking costumes. Right. And these guys in Viking costumes, do you think they were part of the plot to make the whole thing look ridiculous or they were genuine protesters? I know from from uh, having spoken to one of them afterward, uh, not the one who's who's famous, but but an, the one who was caught with his picture uh, wearing um, like a, a wolf wolf pelt, and he yeah. looked very clueless. He was he was just a druggie. He was uh, right. he was on mushrooms at the time, and he he didn't have a clue what he was up to. Somebody just mm -hmm. handed him stuff, and he just went and, and and he was in there just just being an idiot. But you always need idiots to be the front men for you because you don't sacrifice your best chess pieces at once. You 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 find somebody else to do it. So I really don't know. Uh, right. Someone, you know, the the the, the one who who is famous is a is a is a street theater actor anyway. But it seems like you know he certainly wasn't there as the Capitol mm -hmm. videos show, the security cameras show. He wasn't there to overthrow the government. He was just in there to to cause mischief and make a spectacle. Hmm. I mean, you know that expression, red-pilled and blue-pilled. Um, 
and it's it comes from that film the matrix it's a science fiction film from the 1990s and if you're red pill you've t taken a, a step i won't go into the details of the film as we don't have enough time but you, you you've stepped across the threshold and you realize that the intelligence agencies do these things you realize that newspapers lie you realize that color revolutions take place you realize that assassinations take place and poisonings take place and i think all sides do it yes the russians of course the chinese but also the americans and the british and 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 they're playing games with us the public and once you realize that you can you're a much better citizen you can read the, the world much better but unfortunately in europe at least everyone just believes the mainstream media which comes from america and britain you know and they just read but in what, what i in America, you seem to be much more savvy about what's really going on in the world because you've, I don't know, you're, it's your revolutionary heritage or something, or you have a, a freer media despite everything. I mean, the alternative media and, and TNT and, and other websites I've seen. Fox News used to be a bit more free, not anymore, I don't think. So we're sort of looking to you guys to, to rescue us in Europe because our populations are completely brainwashed. But anyway, we've just got a few more minutes because we're going to go back and talk to your book, which is basically something like, the, the entire deep state in America has sort of gone woke. And rather than focus on foreign enemies, uh, they focus on, on, on the white majority of the US and on traditional values or you know family values and so on. And they treat that almost like McCarthy treated the communists or something like that. Or, I mean, you, you have a long argument about cultural Marxism. So if you, you've sort of imported communist values uh, from Central Europe in the 1950s and that took over your universities. And then now it's taken over your agencies and they're persecuting uh, normal family fathers for being, you know, white conservatives. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And what's what? How, how we heard about uh, Christian persecution, for instance? That's unbelievable to me. I talked to another guy a few days ago. Uh, people protesting against abortion get eleven years eleven year jail sentences. I mean, that's incredible. That's that sounds like the Soviet Union. Anyway, well, even what, Alexei Navalny in Russia, who just died in Putin's prison, he wasn't yeah. even sentenced to the length that certain Americans have been sentenced for for completely nonviolent, that's, right. that's right, know, constitutionally protected activities. Yeah. I mean, my problem, I said, it's fine. Yeah, Ru Russia could be an authoritarian state. Fine, all that could be true, but you don't learn the whole story unless you don't know what's happening in the U.S. and other places as well. And uh, don't be distracted by that and focus on what's going on in your own country, because that's the only country you can really affect, you know. Um, yeah, but, um, well, this is the shock. We expect this from the Russian regime. We don't expect it from exactly. Anglo democracies. But isn't it also a diversion? Because they're saying, look there rather than look here. It's a way of uniting the country, of course, against the Russian adversary without solving your domestic problems. And and the elites that have brought it to this stage where, where normal people are have 20 year or 15 year jail sentences for for demonstrating uh, peacefully at the capital and you've got to, so what can we do about it and how and your book is a kind of call to arms to say well look let's look at our agencies because they've gone too far in this kind of woke nonsense and persecution of normal people do you have any solutions or prescriptions well first of all they when 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 something goes too far you have to rein it in and if you don't rein it in and if you're afraid of people simply because they have some supposed authority or some legal mandate, there's always a there's always a way to to yeah. break that, to slow yeah. it down, and to bring it back. And that's what we we can do here. In 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 the U.S., we have something great. Our sheriffs 
or democratically yeah. elected county law. Mike, we, we've law got to end there. So if you can sum up your uh, your prescription, your advice in in one or two sentences, what, what are we going to do from after reading your book to save America? Centralize the FBI and break it up into smaller functionary pieces to make it part of history, and then split okay. the CIA into two separate organizations and slash its bureaucracy. Slash the bureaucracy and reform the CIA. I totally agree. That sounds like an excellent idea. Thanks a lot, Mike Waller. Brilliant writer. This is TNT Radio. Goodbye.